Hi everyone, it's Daniel here at False Summits, exploring the how and the why of overcoming challenges and using values as a guide in career, education, creativity, and adventure. Welcome to episode three of the podcast here at False Summits. And today I'm thinking about skill and passion and all these words that are thrown around when we're trying to make some kind of decisions about, about our careers and where they could be going. So I've been thinking about this for a while, but um, I just recently finished a, a certain book that's uh, definitely prompted some thinking about this. And this book raises this whole idea of whether skill is more important than passion when it comes to making decisions about your career. Is this really true? That's what I'm wondering. Can it be that simple? Okay. What's the book? What's the book that I'm talking about? It's So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Subtitle, Why Skills Trump Passion in the Quest for Work You Love. This episode will take the form of a dialogue with Cal Newport, author of the blog Study Hacks and three books on career and work habits. First one I just mentioned, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And his other book is Deep Work, Rules for Success in a Distracted World. Finally, his most recent book, Digital Minimalism. Yet to read that one, but uh, I definitely have read the other two and quite interesting and also rather provocative. So we'll see. Okay, so to be clear, Cal will not be joining me actually for this episode. So this is just a dialogue that's uh, in the imagination. And so I'm just going to wrestle with some of his ideas and diffuse a little bit of the uh, controversy you could say about these uh challenging ideas, try and clear away some of the clouds that have arisen for me, both uh, before reading his books, but also still after having read them, you know, is it true that skill is more important than passion? Should we shy away from passion or interest uh, as a yardstick or as a tool for assessing whether or not we should go down a certain career path? And uh, so we're going to get stuck into that. This book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, it charts Newport's quest to discover how it is that people come to love their work, and uh, he wrote this after finishing graduate school in the United States in computer science. First off, I'd like to give you an overview of some of the key concepts in the book, and you might be wondering, why does it have a title like that? Where does that come from? Well, the book takes its title from a Steve Martin line, which, so Steve Martin, if you don't know him, the comedian and actor, so he had this interview in 2007, and when he was asked by the interviewer, Charlie Rose, what advice he had for aspiring performers, he replied, be so good, they can't ignore you, even though it was advice that he thinks people don't really want to hear. So essentially, the idea is to get so good at whatever it is that you're pursuing that opportunities seem to manifest for you, but that really does require some hard work. All right, so this podcast, it's going to focus on four key parts from the book and deal with a few of my different hang-ups, questions, thoughts on these four different sections. So the first idea that we're going to get stuck into is the idea of the craftsman mindset, and that's intimately related to the passion hypothesis that Newport is kind of butting up against a little bit. Then we also have career capital, which is essential here. And finally, creating a career mission. Okay, so it could be going over our heads a little bit right from the start, but we're going to jump in first with the craftsman mindset. Too often, Newport thinks that people conceive of the benefits of what a career could offer them, uh, as opposed to considering how their skills and talents can be of service to others. I don't know if this resonates with you, but I mean, even with, with me, or I suppose it's a natural human tendency to think that, you know, what, what skills am I going to get out of this? What, what benefits? What monetary compensation, for example? And, and of course, we all want certain types of rewards, but ultimately, sometimes we don't know exactly what we can offer of service until we get 
really good at something. And that's where the craftsman mindset comes in. There's something about this which I really love. So essentially the idea is just really honing and refining a particular skill that you have. That's not to say that you only ever have to be really good at one thing and that it's a bad thing to be good at multiple things, but it's the idea of losing yourself in the object or the artistic pursuit or the skill, anything that you're creating and developing, as opposed to always front-ending and thinking first of what's the outcome I'm going to get, what's the benefit I'm going to get. Instead, you almost lose yourself in the work and by by really refining something, then you start to see the applications that it could have, the values that it could have. And it's through that deep concentration that you actually come to, uh, come to appreciate how much it is that you can learn. At the outset, if you don't really apply yourself and you're just thinking only about what it could offer you, you're not really aware of, of how deep you can go into, into learning. It does remind me a little bit of what a Japanese philosopher, Toshihiko Izutsu, once uh, described, which was uh, this Zen idea of the music player being being one with their harp, you know, like they're so good at playing the music of the harp that the harp no longer exists, the human music player almost no longer exists, there's just music, like the harp music, and when you're in that position, you kind of lose yourself in the pursuit. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience with something that you're really passionate about or something that you're really good at, but that's the idea of getting so good at something that you almost start to develop that passion in it and start to find yourself in a state of flow. Now, of course, craft, it at first comes to mind, makes me think of something like a, like a piece of wood or a chair or something like that, but it need not be something physical. You don't need to be applying this type of mindset to anything physical. It could be something like learning data analytics or um, public speaking. It could be any kind of skill. So this craftsman mindset stands in opposition to the passion hypothesis. That's what Newport calls this whole idea of having a pre-existing passion that you identify with, could be gymnastics, for example, and that just thinking that the best career choices are going to be boiling down to matching whatever job is out there to whatever my passion is. Okay, growing up, I was always so passionate about gymnastics. How am I going to, how am I going to find that? Where's, where's the gymnastics job for me? The idea of how that could be a little bit dangerous is that it might very much narrow your field of vision, especially if you're the type of person that thinks that you have this one passion that you've had since you were a child and that almost like your life's purpose, I mean, that's a little bit dramatic, but that your that the purpose of your career is to, is to follow along with that legacy of whatever it was that you've been passionate about since you were a child. This could also manifest in this, this danger or this dangerous idea uh, of the magic right job that's out there. And if you just found that, then you would be happy. And I can relate to this to a degree, you know, uh, although I think it's important to separate the finer points. So for me, growing up, my dad told me, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, which you know, sounds very intuitive, right? It's like, it, and it could sound unsettlingly familiar to the passion hypothesis. You know, if I just find something that I enjoy, that I'm passionate about, that I'm interested in, then of course, it's not going to seem like work, right? And for me, something that I always loved was writing. And so I guess I kind of always thought, okay, going to be a writer of children's books. That's it. Okay. Like that's what I'm going to do in order to be happy, I suppose, with, with my career. But finding a job you love, I don't think it necessarily implies matching to a pre-existing passion. There's nothing wrong with those passions or interests, but you know, perhaps this whole idea of work we love can actually be cultivated and developed and not necessarily that it's this static idea I've had since I was five, bang, done. Like I'm not going to develop any new passions. So Newport makes this claim that we don't really even have these pre-existing passions, that 
hold a great sway on our personal identity and ultimate career progression, but he believes instead that these passions emerge once you've really developed some career capital. Okay, so what do we mean by career capital? The idea of capital, its original definition, capitalism, so on, so I'm not thinking about capital city, I'm thinking about capital in a financial sense, like capitalism. In its original definition, it refers to an amount of financial resources or wealth that is then used for a specific purpose, like investing or starting a company. So career capital has the same kind of thrust. It refers to resources that are meant to be used or applied to a specific purpose. But in this case, the resources aren't financial. They are rare and valuable skills that are honed through years of conscious practice. And the purpose that we're applying them to, it's not necessarily the acquisition of shares or a company or anything like that, but it's the acquisition of a greater degree of impact, creativity, and control in one's career. So having a little bit more freedom to choose where you're going and you get there by building up this store of of skills, uh, this capital that you can then apply. One idea with this, for example, is that if you've been in a certain job for four or five years, for example, and you've really kind of cut out this niche where let's say you're the only person that knows how to use a certain type of software or um, design a certain type of program, you're going to start to become valuable and that employer is going to want to hang on to you, right? And then let's say you want to do something a little bit more with that. You say, actually, I want to spend more of my time on this programming exercise or whatever it may be. That Then because you're the only one that does it and you have that rare and valuable skill, that career capital, your employer, because they really value that, they may then give you that degree of autonomy, so freedom, uh, which will also lead to impact as well because you're good at that and that's what you want to apply yourself to. You're going to be having more of an impact with it as opposed to if you had a low degree of skill in that. And the better at it you get, of course, you have a greater degree of creativity so you can start to carve out a niche like that. Now, of course, that's not just a matter of, okay, I'm good at this certain thing. Hey, employer, um, do you mind just letting me do this uh, this thing that I want to do? Thanks. Like, of course, you can let me. Like, of course, there are many other many other factors there. You know, you're not just let, let to do whatever you want. But generally, that's the principle that the better at something you get, the more career capital you create the more value, valuable you become and the more people sort of want to want to use your skills uh, or want to, want to hang on to you, but you have a little bit more say as uh, in how you use them. So to get back to the idea of passion, Newport is making this claim that the more that you develop this career capital, that's actually when you start to have a little bit more passion. So you start to notice that you're competent and uh, skilled. I don't use the word skill a lot in this podcast, but uh, so you're very um, yeah, competent and uh, good, you know, for want of a better word at what you're doing and then you start to really enjoy it, right? It's good, it's fun to do something that you're good at. And so these these three key outcomes or consequences from developing career capital, control, creativity, and impact, and I use control and autonomy a little bit interchangeably sometimes, but the degree of having a say over, over what you're doing in your work, these three ideas that Newport outlines, he, they're not the only things that people really desire in a great career or in a career that they love, but they are very common across a lot of careers. And I don't think anyone can say that they don't want them, but they also have been influenced by some psychological and scientific studies that Newport has read. So for example, there's this idea of self-determination theory that's been described by Daniel Pink. He's, he hasn't invented it, but he's done some work on it. Daniel Pink's an author who you may have heard of. And so he identifies autonomy, competence, and relatedness as three key nutriments for being intrinsically motivated for work. So if you get to work or school, let's say, and you're like, yes, like I'm ready to go, uh, that's probably because you have 
one of those three or, or all of them. Ideally, you want all of them. So competence, you know, are you good at what you're doing? Autonomy, do you have a say in what you're doing? And relatedness, being connected, appreciated, valued by other people that you're related to, to at work, right? So your peers or like, let's say, fellow students. This actually reminds me a lot of another theory in education known as the circle of courage. And this was developed from work with Native American communities. And this theory holds that one of the key ingredients for self-esteem in young people is mastery. And mastery is a sense of competence and belief, strong belief in, in your own capabilities, right? This is because every human enjoys uh, improving and reaping the rewards of that increased skill. You start to feel valuable, appreciated, especially as we start to offer that to other people. And that's where the craftsman mindset comes in here a little bit as well. It's the idea of what can I offer to the world, given given my my talents, as opposed to what does the world have to offer me? You know, like I've always grown up wanting to be a gymnastics. Uh, I don't know why I'm using gymnastics. Like you'll see later, I've got another example, but um, a pro at XYZ career, hobby, and uh, I'm going to be the best at that thing. You know, I think that's a little bit more shallow. Having said that, pushing yourself to be the best, like of course, that, uh, that could be a good thing as well. It depends on the degree of humility that you have. Okay, so I'd like to delve a little bit more into this idea of the passion hypothesis and why it could be dangerous, but also some questions I have for Mr. Newport. So I think it's helpful to actually pause for a moment and think, what do we actually mean by passion in the first place? Like, Just how specific does that have to be? I think Newport often makes it out like the passion is a very specific thing, like these examples I've been using, like being a novelist, being a pro-gymnast, something like that. Uh, or like, like a hobby. But these, these are almost a little bit like hobbies, I would say, as well. Think for a moment about some of your own passions and ask yourself, where did they come from? You know, were they nurtured by others or were they developed you know, by yourself uh, as a kid or like at any point in time, really, through you know, just like a lot of practice, experimentation, creativity? Maybe it was prob- probably some mixture of both as well. But um, yeah, passion probably doesn't necessarily have to be something so specific like those examples I was saying before. So... To explore this, if we take gymnastics as an example, uh, we can say that like as a career choice, this probably as a passion, if we're basing our career choice on a passion of gymnastics, it's probably not a great career choice if you think of it in a very narrow sense. And the reason being that it's a very niche career, you know, you have to be a certain age and like the prime of a gymnast is probably, so I've heard that it's like 16 or even 14, you know, like when you're like super young and flexible. Um, yeah, so uh, a lot of us probably pass that age, but uh, couldn't an interest in gymnastics, yeah, a passion, couldn't that be conceived of as like in a broader way? Maybe the passion is not necessarily being a gymnast, but it could actually include a whole host array of different transferable skills and passions that are all related to that. So they could be a passion or an interest or um, you know, some degree of proficiency in movement, uh, communication, a sensibility or an appreciation for harmony or beauty or an interest in physical health, flexibility. These are all elements that could come into that. And then that starts to like broaden the field a little bit of where we think if at first you identify that your passion is gymnastics, it's not, it's not like your only outcome is to be a professional in that particular field, like an athlete or something like that. You know, if you delve deeper into what that passion is, maybe you're actually passionate about any one of those previous subparts that I mentioned. So maybe it's not all bad to say that we should base our, base our career decisions on passion, but just as equally, we could say that people have uh, a value or a skill in any of these one areas as well. So it starts to get a little bit gray here. You know, it's like, for example, you could say that you really value 
the place of physical health and flexibility for people, maybe because you've noticed a lot of people deal with physical issues, you know, family members, friends, and you really want to promote that value in other people's lives and help them. And so, sure, you're passionate about it, but, um, but yeah, you are still taking on that craftsman mindset in a sense and, and thinking, what can you offer of value to the world given your interests and expertise? Okay, here's another few things that a little bit problematic for the for the passion hypothesis, but uh, also just in general, some good good things to think about. So, are these passions that you might have are they likely to change, or are you likely to develop new passions in the future? I think this is a danger here because, as I mentioned earlier, we could tend to romanticize, so like really idealize what we're passionate about in childhood, and think that any career decisions that seem to deviate, change. Uh, go away from this whole idea or a sense of betrayal of our innermost self. As a child, I wanted to be a children's fiction writer. Okay, but now I want to do something else. Oh, am I am I somehow being inauthentic or not true to who I always felt called to be? Um, but you know that's not necessarily true, right? Like we have many things that we're interested in, and in a way, them actually maybe develop from it. And it's okay to let things go because maybe that that comes with a sense of maturity. Having said that, some people absolutely know what they want to have done, certain things they want to have done from a young age, and then they work towards that, and kudos to them. Okay, now let's say there is a job out there that actually matches what your passion is. How likely is that job to endure? Because everyone says this whole thing about, oh, you know, like, we're going to change careers so many times, and, you know, what's what's to be even said about the jobs that don't even exist yet that are going to be created? So that's always another thing to consider. Ultimately, though, if we if we prioritize the craftsman mindset and how it cultivates the career capital and then allows us to exercise more impact, creativity, and control, we can then exchange these uh, almost regardless of which, which career we're in. Of course, like some skills are not going to be applicable in other fields, but um, yeah, so it's almost like we'll bring a sense of passion with us, uh, given our sense of competence and, and confidence uh, that we have because we've uh, created these stores of capital in other, other fields. Okay, last point. You might have heard of some people that feel really driven to accomplish a certain thing and they may seem so noble and they think, how are we ever going to get to that point? Or do I even want to get to that point? People that have a sense of mission in their career, almost like a vocation, something that they're called to do or that they feel that they're called to do. And in a way, it's a mystery to me how some people have had such clarity from an early age. I think I'm actually starting to get there myself over the last few years. But um, I'm curious how often like this mission that someone might develop, like let's say it's to uh, help treat a certain disease in a particular part of the world, how often does that mission actually stay in its original form when it was conceived, when we came up with it, and how often does it change and actually come to support something a little bit different, but ultimately still be be in the same, same line, like be still in the same pursuit? So Newport believes that as we get deeper and deeper into our skill and career development, as we're developing career capital in his language, that we start to find some clarity about how our talents can truly be of service to the world and that is how can they be applied in a guiding sort of mission. So an overarching narrative to our career. So he cites some people that have started out being a doctor, but then maybe they did volunteer work overseas and then they were going to go into research and over time they start to refine exactly what it is. So they're getting better and better at that, at their field, but then they find that particular cause that they might want to dedicate this accumulation of expertise too. Now, one way that they do this, which I think is very applicable, even even if you're not necessarily trying to create a mission, but one, it's a good strategy, this next one I'm about to outline, it's called little bets. And the idea is that 
well, the idea is not actually Cal Newport's, but it's an idea from an author and venture capitalist called Peter Sims. And the idea is that while you may have an inclination to pursue a certain mission, you know, say it was the idea about medicine, or let's say it's to popularize archaeology for a wide audience, you don't know if that mission is going to be successful or viable until you make a little bet or a little foray into this new domain. So you, you bet yourself, like, actually, can I, is that possible if I maybe try and start a TV show, like a small TV show about archaeology? Okay, and then let's say it doesn't work, or let's say you're a comedian, Newport cites the example of Chris Rock as well, and you're going to experiment with these new jokes, see how they go, and they fall flat, nobody laughs. Okay, uh, yeah, it's a failure, but it's um, the bet didn't work. But now you have some information, you know, you're probably going to try to do something different. So even if you fail, you're still refining your ideas and getting getting closer to a certain direction or mission that you might be moving into. And let's say it does pay off, you go, okay, now I, now I know that that's a little bit more possible to pursue this, let's say it's the TV show, or to make this certain kind of comedy. And another idea that behind that that I think is really quite useful is this idea of getting yourself out of your comfort zone. Because if you do something that's a little bit difficult, and you mostly master it, then you can push yourself a little bit further the next time, and that's how you start to start to get better and better at things. To recap, those are the four ideas from the book and my thoughts on them. We've got the craftsman mindset, really honing your craft, honing a particular skill. We've got that in opposition to the passion hypothesis that I'm just passionate about these things, always have been, and I'm going to go find a career that matches that. Done. You know, it doesn't exactly have as much of this sense of uh, I'm going to be self-improving and pursuing my own learning. Also, I've got the idea of career capital and how that creates the three three key ingredients, or three very popular ingredients for a successful career, a career that we love, and those are control, impact, and creativity. Finally, the idea of a mission, a guiding mission for one's career. Okay, quick time for a quick side note now. Something else that I read in the book that just like uh, unsettled me a little bit. You know, I thought, ah, oh, that's totally me, or uh, maybe I need to do something about that. First couple of pages, uh, Newport cites this uh, uh, an expert on the mindset of the modern postgrad. I think he's a psychologist, Jeffrey Arnett, and he says that people that have graduated from university, this is a very common trend in the way that they think, and it's that they they expect work to not just be a job, but an adventure or a venue for self development and self expression, and something that provides a satisfying fit with their assessment of their talents. Okay, so that sounds very much like what I talk about here at this podcast, in a way, it's values-based careers, adventures, and uh, very much this idea of yeah, the, the personal development. Um, and don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we can have those qualities, but at the same time, I think it's definitely true that sometimes we need to suck it up and apply ourselves to something and not necessarily know how it's going to how it's going to help us, but just trust that by by getting better at something that uh, that we could serve us in the future, we don't know, you know, all of the all of the roads that we're going to end up taking, and that's true in many other things as well. It's true in relationships. If we just like apply ourselves authentically to the best of our ability, and and honestly, and be honest with things, that you never know what could actually come out of that. And in a way, it's kind of it's a privilege to to be able to think like that. You know, like so many people do jobs that maybe they don't don't love, you know, but they um. They really try and make it of service to other people and they try and find the good in it. And your job doesn't have to be everything. Your job doesn't have to be the sole venue for self-development, as, as Arnett says, you know. But it could, it could definitely have space for some degree of self-expression. But ultimately, humans are pretty complex. And so 
you might have a lot of talents or interests or different things that yeah that are found outside your career and that's okay too you know you don't need to fit everything into one big story mm, i think something that's really key here is that you know the the deep hard work that's something that's common to everyone so even if there are people that have careers that seem like an adventure or like they're very focused on self-expression like let's say it's someone that is an artist or, or a business person someone that's created something um we shouldn't malign them and say, oh, that's bad. You know, like they're, they're so, uh, they, they've got the assessment of their talents all integrated into their work and like they've got all that purpose, blah, blah, blah. Because um, they've still put in a lot of work too and I'm sure that they didn't know exactly which way the path would go. I'm sure they did things that they uh, they weren't exactly enjoying at the time but that ended up becoming useful later on and they've come to a point where, let's say it's someone that set up a coaching business or um, you know, like a food business, anything, anything really, They've, they've come to that and they've applied a lot of different lessons along the way from their jobs and outside their jobs to get to that point. So they're still putting in an enormous amount of work and that mission is uh, still being developed along the way. Going to take a, uh, a break on the, uh, the ideas, other ideas from different books by Cal Newport. I could deal with them another time. Deep work is uh, one of those. But finally, I'd like to leave you with some of the study or work habits that have come out of these books for me as to how I'm applying them in my own life. So one quick thing that I'd like to share with you is uh, the way that I plan and uh, plan my days, weeks, year. So one thing I've developed is a spreadsheet for counting the number of deep or creative hours on on projects. And that's something that's a little, little bit more challenging to track these days, given the number of hours I actually spend teaching, which is my, my full-time job. However, the purpose is clear. It's like It's a motivational tool, right, and a way of holding myself accountable if i see those hours start to climb if i've done 30 hours in a month i'm pretty happy with myself okay maybe i'll try and increase that a little bit in the next next month when i plan out my weeks and days as well i'm also thinking of when is the best time to do that deep conscious work that's going to result in the growth of rare and valuable skills so for me that time is the morning and that's when i focus best if i can really concentrate on something then that's when you're going to reap the rewards have a coffee break at 10.30 and uh, yeah, you're laughing. So there you go. And then you can deal with some more low-level admin type things in the afternoon. That's if you had a whole day to yourself. Everyone's schedule's a little bit different, but um, small steps. Time for our concluding reflection. Okay, so how do we come to find work we love? Is passion really as unhelpful as Cal Newport makes it out to be? I think there's a lot to be said for mastering skills and having passion as a byproduct it's important to acknowledge when you might be at the bottom of a certain skill tree and not resting on your laurels but knowing that there's a there's a lot there's a lot of different ways that you could go to climb up from there and there's a lot of stuff that you don't even know that you don't know yet in a given field and um there's a real sense of humility there and drive to improve and be of service and i really love that Uh, however i would be cautious to chastise yourself or avoid what you might identify as your own passions as if that's now a thing to be ashamed of you know i wouldn't advise just jumping into any career and hoping that passion will just emerge as you get better at it because your natural dispositions and prior experience and interests you know, dare i say passions uh, will actually have some say over the types of work where you might begin to develop skill and then possibly eventually passion as well so this is because you might have an idea of what you'd like to contribute your skills and potential to For example, in my case, uh, I wouldn't have thrown myself into investment banking or politics, as some people said that I would do well there. I'm like, really? Uh, Like, I cannot see myself there. Um, 
but rather, you know, I went along with some of my interests, history, writing, journalism. You know, you have to start somewhere, and uh, yet always you have to be open to new vistas and passions and missions emerging as well. Life's short, so let's focus and uh, appreciate appreciate the twists and turns along the way. Thank you for joining me in that third episode of the Fell Summits podcast on skills and passions. If you haven't already, consider subscribing, uh, leaving a review on Apple iTunes uh, or both. Uh, and it really helps the show to be found. And I want to help as many people as possible. I want to hear your stories as well, just as I share what I've learned along the way. So if you've done that, you're a legend and keep it up. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more, you can head over to my website, www.fallsummits.org, and you can find some show notes for the episode, uh, a few different episodes from the past archive, got some resources and blogs up there as well. So definitely welcome to check that out. Otherwise, I'll be seeing you next month. Uh, have a good one. Take care. Fall Summits partly owes its existence to Claire Fogarty and Michael Zamponia, two stalwart creatives and longtime friends. A huge thank you to Claire for her music production and to Michael for the uplifting design that you see before you on your screen. All right, everyone, that's it from me for today for this episode. I'll see you next time. Take care.